Bible reading is from the book of Esther, chapter 9, verses 1 through to chapter 10, verse 3. On the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Eudalia, Aridatha, Parmashta, Arisai, Aridai, and Vaizatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamidatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa three hundred men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Ada, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observed the 14th of the month of Ada as a day of joy and fasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events 
and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head, and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim, and from the word poor, because of everything written in this letter, and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. And the second Bible reading is Revelation chapter 19, verse 1 to 3. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude 
in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Well, you want to uh, keep your bulletins open. Uh, you've got your uh, passage, uh, passages on there. You can uh, follow along. Uh, you'll also find uh, an outline, uh, just a handout uh, there on your seats. Uh, you'll find that helpful as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word. Amen. Well, it's our last day of Esther, and it's, uh, I don't know about you, but I've just loved going through Esther this term. Uh, It's really forced me to work hard as we've looked at God's Word each week, and I've gotten a fair bit of feedback, and and a few of the things that I've gotten quite frequently, uh, particularly from our growth group members, uh, is that many of us weren't expecting just how relevant this book would be for us today. I think many of us have many people said to me how surprised they were that this this book speaks to us now um, and that you know for a lot of us the anything written before Jesus way back then it can be a bit difficult uh, can seem a bit distant or irrelevant uh, but as we looked at in our very first week in Romans 15 verse 4 we read everything including Esther everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And so it's been a great encouragement to see that these things that happened 2,500 years ago, well before COVID and smartphones and modern life, have been written for us to teach us endurance and encouragement and hope. Well, some of the things that we've covered this term uh, as we've followed this story is that Esther has taught us today to long for the return of the true King Jesus. It's reminded us that even in the midst of poor leadership and things looking like a disaster, that God is in complete control. Esther's taught us to pray and trust God when we find ourselves in some pretty terrible situations it's challenged us to take responsibility and act in every situation because God has put us in every situation for his purposes it's urged us not to get discouraged when people hate us simply for being Jesus's people it's and it's encouraged us to celebrate even in the midst of our sorrow because we know that Christ has triumphed at the cross. But one of the other bits of feedback uh, that I've also heard a lot of is that a lot of people, uh, many of us uh, who were familiar with the story of Esther in the past, most of us had a bit of a sanitised kind of Disney version of Esther, you know, the the kind that you get in maybe Sunday uh, kids' church. Uh, As we've read Esther this term, For many of us, we've been kind of shocked and confronted 
with just how gritty and confronting and bloody this story is. And today we come to the most bloody, most confronting part of this whole book, right here at the end. So I think for most of us, we could stomach uh, a drunk pagan king impaling a guy on a 15-metre pole. You know, that's just what drunk pagan kings do. But here, we find our sweet little Esther asking the king not only to impale all of Haman's dead sons on poles for everyone to see, but also after 75,500 people have been killed, she asks if they can do it again for another day. This is not the story I'm sure you remember from kids' church. And I, I wonder if you, like me, have read this and asked the question, well, how is this good? How is this relevant today? How does this, Romans 15, teach me encouragement and endurance and hope? Because it's pretty grisly. Well, the answer to these questions is here in the story of Esther, but also in the big story of the whole Bible that Esther fits into and is a part of. Now, the reason why each week we've had two readings, an Esther reading and another reading from another part of the Bible, is to remind us that Esther and any part of the Bible can only really be understood when we see it in the whole picture and the whole story the story where God is bringing salvation for his people through his son, Jesus. The story where God brings mercy to all who will accept his son. But the story where God's salvation and his mercy comes hand in hand with judgment without mercy for all who reject his son, Jesus. And so this morning, we're wrestling with the terrifying reality of the judgment of God. And my prayer is that by the end of our time together, we too will be able to join in that second reading with all the multitudes in heaven and say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because true and just are his judgments. Well, let's start, and you see our first point there, by asking the question, how is this different to any other massacre in history? Have a look back at verse 5. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what ple they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed the 10 sons of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. But, verse 10, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now, I'm sure we've all seen a detective movie where there's the familiar kind of trope, uh, someone's been killed in a robbery. But then as the detective starts to investigate, they discover that things aren't quite lining up. See, they were killed in a supposed robbery, but then the victim is still wearing their expensive Rolex or their pearl necklace and their diamond brooch and their earrings. And 
the detective starts to wonder, well, hang on, if this is a robbery, how come they haven't touched any of the plunder? Maybe the wallet's gone, but actually there's some really valuable stuff here they could have quickly just grabbed and run. Something doesn't quite add up. Maybe this is something different. And you know what? That's what it's like here for this massacre that takes place, for this battle and for the, what happens here is the Jews kill many of their enemies who came to attack them. See, if the Jews' massacre of their enemies was just an ordinary massacre like we see, sadly, all throughout history and all throughout our world, surely at this point, they would have taken the plunder. I mean, that's just what you do. That's just what everyone always does. The conquerors, well, it's their right to claim what they've conquered. And actually, the law that had gone out permitted them to do that. Surely, if this was just a normal, everyday, garden-variety massacre, they would have taken the plunder. But three times here, our author draws attention to the fact that they didn't. Three times we're told they didn't touch the plunder. And the author is trying to tell us something important. He's actually trying to throw our minds and our memories back to earlier history. He's trying to throw our memories back to the very beginning of these people that we call Israel or Hebrews or the Jews, to Abraham, the father of the Jews. You'll see I've left some notes there on uh, your sermon notes for some passages uh, to look up later. In Genesis 14, Abraham... Uh, he went and rescued uh, people from the... It was actually the descendants of Haman. He went and rescued people from the Amalekites and the other pagan nations when he went and rescued his nephew Lot. And at that moment, Abraham refused to take any of the plunder because he didn't want anyone to say that he had become rich based on anyone else. And then if we jump ahead to 1 Samuel 15, we looked at this passage earlier on, uh, this term, when we looked at the fact that Mordecai's descendant Saul, King Saul, God had told him to kill Haman's descendant Agag. To not only kill Agag, but to kill all the Amalekites. To destroy everything they own, cattle, property, gold, clothing, tents, everything. And God had told them to do that as God's judgment against the Amalekites for their sin and their evil and their wickedness. But if you remember a few weeks ago, Saul failed to do what God told him to do. The Jews failed to do what God told them to do. They failed to destroy Agag, they failed to wipe out the Amalekites. They failed to destroy the plunder because they brought home the plunder for themselves. And if you go back uh, this evening and you read 1 Samuel 15, you'll see that this ended in disaster for God's people. Now, the author here wants us, wants to highlight the fact that this is different. Wants to highlight the fact that here, the Jews are doing what God had told them to do way back in Saul's day. 
they're finally doing what God said to do, to destroy their enemies, but not touch the plunder. And so this shows us that this is no ordinary massacre. This isn't motivated by hatred or by greed. This is not even motivated by fear. This is motivated by God's command. It's a holy war. It's a holy war. And God used the Jews to enact his judgment. And you know, even, and you might sort of think, okay, well, fair enough. You know, maybe at that point in time, God said, go and wipe out your enemies. But why did you have to go and stick them on a pole, Esther? Why did you have to stick all of Haman's 10 sons up on poles? But actually, even that has significance. See, in Deuteronomy 21, uh, you you can read this on your uh, outline. God gave his people a rule for when they lived in the land that he had given to them. So if someone guilty of a capital offence is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. Well, here they're outside the promised land, so Esther's not worried about them hanging overnight. But what we see right here in Haman and his ten sons, the enemies of the Jews, the enemies of God, we see displayed for all, here is God's curse on them. We see there a sign that God has not abandoned his people even though they've been kicked out of the land. God is still keeping his promises he made to Abraham back in Genesis 12, that God said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. See, these events here, they point to something more significant than a massacre. They point to a holy war, the judgment of God meted out through his people. Now that holy war was specific to the Jews at that specific time in history for those particular people. But what about us? God's people today are no longer a nation or or an ethnic group. God's people, his church, are made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And thankfully, Jesus hasn't called us to a holy war. Except he actually has. Have a look there at Colossians 3. You'll find on your bulletins. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath or the judgment of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. 
See, Jesus has given us a holy war, hasn't he? Except it's not against people. The holy war that he has given us to fight is against our own sinful nature, against sin, against the devil and his schemes. And just like God's instructions back then to Saul and to the Jews, this is a real take-no-prisoners war. It's not something we can mess around in. We're called not to engage with the world, not to love the world, not to set our mind on the things of this world, but to set our mind on things above. And just like those bodies piled up in Susa and impaled on those poles, people should actually be able to look at our lives and see the casualties of that war. People should be able to look at our lives and see the sin that we've been putting to death along the way. They should be able to point to the dead bodies, dead and dying, of impurity, of lust, of greed, of anger, of slander, of filthy language, of idolatry, of selfishness. People should be able to look at our lives and see that we have been waging a no-holds-barred holy war against sin and our sinful nature. See, we are still in a holy war. God still calls us to arm ourselves and fight. But is that the whole story of Esther? Well, no, that's not. Because the judgment we see in Esther is a little story pointing forward to the end of the big story, which we're reminded of when we jump to our second reading, which is at the very end of the story in Revelation. See, the judgment in Esther for the enemies of the Jews is like a little tiny pointer, a little signpost to the ultimate judgment of all of God's enemies. But how could we, like in Revelation 19... How could we rejoice at that? How could we rejoice at the destruction of other human beings? Well, our second point, true and just are his judgments. Have you ever heard um, someone say that they think that God's too harsh or maybe they say that uh, they don't think it's right or fair that God would judge anybody? Ever heard that before? probably heard it out of your own lips or in your own thoughts or in your own mind as well. Now, one of my kids, uh, I won't tell you which one. Um, it's not fair being a pastor's kid, is it? You get, you know. <laughs> one of my kids uh, has a phrase on, on repeat. We hear it way too much. I wish I had $10 for every time I heard it. He's got this phrase that, you just gave me a punishment for no reason. So sometimes he'll come in to me and say, Mum just gave... Oh, I just blew it, didn't I? Mum just gave me a punishment for no reason or Dad just gave me a punishment for no reason. Now, often they're not trying to say they didn't actually do anything at all. Often what they're trying to say is just that they don't think that what they did really deserves any punishment. Now, I think that people, and us included... When we think that God's punishment is too harsh, that God's judgment is too harsh, I think we're thinking along the same lines. 
we're not necessarily thinking we haven't done anything wrong, but I think we're thinking that we haven't done anything really that bad to deserve judgment that bad. But there's some great lines in Esther here that that give us a bit of perspective. Have a look back at verse 1 and 2. On the 13th day, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled to attack those determined to destroy them. Jump down to verse 25, we see that this kind of little summary sentence there that Haman's evil scheme came back onto his own head. See, God's judgment doesn't come for no reason. These people weren't just sitting in their homes and the Jews rocked up and started slaughtering them. No, these are the people who had eagerly been waiting for their chance to attack, kill, destroy, plunder the Jews. They're the people who were up crack of dawn with their weapons coming out to go hunting for Jews. And their judgment was their own guilt coming back to bite them. It wasn't more than they deserved or less than they deserved. It was what they deserved. And we can see the equity, can't we? They planned to kill and they were killed. But what about God's judgment at the end of time? I mean, God's judgment at the end of time goes beyond death. It's eternal. Have a look at our second reading, Revelation 19 and verse 3. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. The smoke from her, that is the smoke from Babylon, the smoke from the enemy of God. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Now, forever is a long time. God's wrath, his judgment, that is poured out on his enemies, that lasts forever and ever. How can that be just? How can that be fair? How can that be equal to the crime? What crime could deserve eternal punishment? But it would have to be a crime of eternal proportions, wouldn't it? Have a look there at Hebrews 10 in your outline. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses, that's anyone who rejected the laws that God originally gave to the Jews back in the Old Testament. Anyone who rejected that law, the Ten Commandments, the other things hanging on, anyone who rejected that law died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the Lord. See, what this is saying 
is that there is every right, true, just reason for eternal judgment. Because the crime of treating God's Son, who came in love and mercy, who humbled himself, who willingly let people flog him, mock him, spit on him, nail him to a cross and crucify him. And he did all of that out of love and mercy for each one of us to forgive us so that we could be right with God. The incredible offence of then treating him like his sacrifice is nothing is of eternal consequence. We have treated the eternal Son of God and his sacrifice of all sacrifices like it's nothing. Well, how severely, if we do that, do we deserve to have that come back on our own heads? If we treat the Son of God who died to save us like nothing, how can we expect him to do anything else than treat us like nothing? If we are happy for him to be humiliated, then why should we expect him to do anything other than allow us to be humiliated? If we are going to refuse to let him pay our debts for us, why should we be surprised if he expects us to pay our debts fully? Debts that actually we could never afford to repay even through all eternity. See, when we see Jesus, the one who is crucified, sitting on his throne in glory, at that moment, nobody will cry that they are getting punished for no reason. We will look at the holes in his hands and his feet of the one who died in our place and we will say, Hallelujah, for true and just are your judgments. Well, Esther is a great encouragement to us and it gives us great hope, doesn't it? God is in control. He is in control for the good of his people, even in the mess of life. And he brings salvation. And that salvation comes hand in hand with his judgment. This is an encouragement to us that evil will not be left unchecked. It teaches us to endure until the day that Christ comes back. And it's also a warning, isn't it? not to make a mistake of eternal proportions. An encouragement to make peace with Jesus, to accept his offer to clear our debts. It's also a cold, hard reality check for those of us who have accepted Jesus. A reality check that those around us who reject him are headed for disaster. Let's pray. We praise you, Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to you, for true and just are your judgments. Amen.